Hey, Real Talkers, Canada's experiencing a full-blown housing crisis. Millions of people literally can't afford a place to live, and experts say we need to add more than 3 million units over the next seven years. How did we get here, and how do we begin to fix it? In this episode of Real Talk, we focus on what pollsters say is the number one issue impacting Canadians. This is a Relay Project. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. want to welcome you to a very special edition of Real Talk. It's a Friday, which means we present our Real Talk Roundtable. But, you know, sometimes we'll wax poetic about something whimsical. Sometimes we'll have some fun with items in the news or maybe items, you know, stories that people just aren't talking about. Not today. Today, we're talking about the issue that Canadians say is the single most important issue facing the almost 40 million people that live in this country, and that is access to housing, affordable housing. There's a supply gap. There's a a, a real deficit in availability. Younger generations are wondering, will they ever have an opportunity to own a home? We've asked three of the foremost experts across the country to join us today. And as we told you yesterday, this is the A-list. These are the first three people that we asked. And in 30 seconds, you're going to meet Jennifer Keysmat, Marie-José Houle, and Jeremy Farkas. We'll properly introduce them and then essentially give them the floor as we attempt to solve over the next hour or so Canada's housing crisis. But first... This episode of Real Talk is presented by our friends at Rello, who want to remind you that back-to-school season isn't just for the kids. If you've been feeling stuck or unsatisfied in your job, now is the perfect time to go back to school for a new career. You can launch a rewarding career in real estate with Rello's affordable online courses. These courses make it easy to pass your exam and get your real estate license so you can run your own business, set your own hours, and be your own boss. The earning potential is unlimited. Plus, you'll be helping people every single day as they buy or sell their homes. One of the best things about Rello is how committed they are to your success. They have live instructors who host online exam prep sessions every Saturday, plus a whole bunch of resources to help you launch your real estate business well after you've passed the exam and gotten licensed. Now, here's a special offer for real talkers. Right now, you can save 20% on any Rello course with the code REALTALK. All one word, that's Real Talk. You can get started today with that promo code at Rello.ca. feel like we should have done this show around Halloween. It's so scary. <laughs> hey, before we get into this, you sent me a note at, a, did, at, a, yeah. at about 6 in the morning today. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know if you were having a hard time sleeping or not. But I was. You and I were talking about this episode yesterday in preparation. With Mo Amir. Talking about the three candidates that were going to join us. Mo Amir joined us from Vancouver. Obviously, mm-hmm. the city of Vancouver's got its own housing issues when it comes to availability and inventory and affordability and all that kind of stuff. Were you tossing and turning last night, Johnny? I, I was because I'm, I'm in this boat. 
I mean, you're a homeowner. I'm not, but me and my partner, we're just about, you know, we're we're almost there. We're almost ready you're to aspiring buy. Aspiring homeowners. Yeah, but I, I and I think Mo touched on this yesterday. It's crazy because everyone's in this one group, right? Wanting to buy a home, can't afford it, bring the prices down. But then immediately when you purchase a home, you jump into the other group. You don't want the prices to come down. And yeah. Mo Amir was saying, you know, even if there's a 10%, you know, correction in the market, people are still going to be angry. But 10%, I mean, if you look at home prices here in Edmonton, that's not going to bring things back to when they were affordable. It needs to be 20, 25, 30, which we know isn't going to happen. So it's a very scary time. And uh, I, as Mo said, it's it's not just politician that can make a decision and fix this. It's a complicated, multi-level thing that is is just it's really scary and we don't want to oversimplify either right no like this can't. isn't all just about bringing prices down no. and then you've got people with their nest eggs going well wait a second what the hell are you doing there yeah there's a whole bunch of angles we're going to hit this from which is why we've put together the trio that we have for today and quite frankly we're thrilled that all three of them have agreed to join us uh, jennifer Keysmat is the founder of marquee developments she's the former chief planner for the city of Toronto. She's a distinguished visitor in planning emeritus at the University of Toronto. And she's just announced, along with several other, can I say, heavy hitters across the country, her partnership and participation in the Clean Economy Fund. And we're going to get to that in just a second. Jeremy Farkas, well-known in the province of Alberta, a former conservative organizer and Calgary city councillor. He placed second. He won the silver medal in the <laughs> Calgary's most recent municipal election. He was looking for gold, though. He served for four years on the Calgary Housing Company's Board of Directors, uh, and he's also, earlier this year, just completed a remarkable 25 Peaks in 25 Days charity challenge, raising more than $50,000 for the Alex, which is a nonprofit housing provider serving the chronically homeless in Calgary. It's also our pleasure to welcome to the program Canada's federal housing advocate, Marie-José Houle. Uh, to the three of you, Thank you so much for making time for us today. I want to encourage you to treat this like we're all out for coffees and uh, feel free to interject, jump in on one another, add your thoughts, take the conversation in whichever direction you think would be most productive. Uh, Marie Jose, welcome to the program. Thank you for making time for us. Why don't you get our audience up to speed on what your mandate is? What does the federal housing advocate do? Well, first of all, the Federal Housing Advocate is a brand new position, so I'm the first in Canada and probably the first in the world. And my job is to hold uh, governments in Canada accountable to their human rights obligation around the human right to housing, which has been enshrined in, uh, in local law in 2019 through the National Housing Strategy Act. So the role is nonpartisan and it is really a monitoring mechanism. It is a watchdog. I can't sue governments. Um, the right isn't enshrined in a constitution, um, but it is uh, still enshrined in local law. Uh, so we look at systemic housing issues. So really it's, it's about uh, the failures and the actions of government uh, to act around the human right to housing. Mm. Jennifer, when we're talking about the the housing crisis in Canada, you you, you may have people in, in in one circumstance where you know there would be first time home buyers, and all of a sudden they're getting a sense of what the challenge looks like when it comes to getting their first set of keys. And then you'll talk to others that'll say, we've seen this coming for decades. I would, I would suspect that the former chief planner for the city of Toronto has had this on her radar for quite some time. Well, hey, look, 
Look, it's one of the reasons I became a developer. Um, when I was at the city and we were struggling, we were we were doing our part as a municipality, putting enabling policies in place. We did a whole series of mass rezonings, but the housing wasn't getting built. And at one point, the mayor at that time was John Tory. John Tory said to me, you know, hey, what else can we possibly do? Like the housing just isn't getting built. And I looked at him and I said, well, there isn't, there isn't, you know, we don't have the partner on the other side of the table to get that housing built. And so I've been seeing this issue become more and more uh, pressing and critical. We were calling it a crisis five years ago, but we never could have imagined that what's happened today could have possibly happened. Like it's like the a crisis on top of a crisis. So I became a developer precisely because I had a pretty good understanding by looking at the data of where this was going and the fact that we need a new approach and um, that we need to be focusing on building at scale rather than just building a little bit of housing. To give you an example, um, our building boom actually happened in the 1970s when our country was a fraction of the size that it is now. And to meet our housing need, as stated by CMHC, 3.2 million homes, by 2030, we would need to build more than double the number of homes we built in our highest city building period, which was back in the 70s. We're nowhere near um, that number right now. So the gap is just kind of astronomical. So it's going to take a lot of heavy lifting and big thinkers and policymakers from all levels of government to start to get into this and to figure out how to fix it. You know, removing the GST is a really critical start. I'm really looking forward to talking about what the relationship needs to look like between governments and developers. And, and this isn't necessarily an exercise in, in finger pointing and assigning blame, but we do today want to identify what some of the root causes of this issue are and what some of the potential solutions are as well. Uh, Jeremy, you wanted to be mayor of the city of Calgary. You're, you're, you're well familiar uh, with that city's politics and, and, and with the landscape, economic, political, and otherwise uh, in in, in in our home province and uh, certainly in the province of, of uh, uh, Alberta that has, has defined itself as one with healthy population growth, uh, bullish economic projections. But, but still, this isn't just Vancouver and Toronto we're talking about. Calgary's got its own issues. I mean, the current council right now is hearing from dozens and dozens of people as part of kind of a town hall hearing. What, what's drawn you to focus so heavily on housing right now with your own career pursuits? Well, it's affordability, right? And nowhere is affordability more acute in, than in Calgary, right? We've sort of rested on our laurels for so long with the status of Canada's most affordable city with high wages, uh, high vacancy rates, uh, low cost of living and all of the rest. And the numbers are really shocking here in Calgary specifically. I'll give you a couple. So the average rent uh, between 2020 and 2023 increased by about 40% or more than $600. The vacancy rate fell from about 6% to about 2% over that same time. Uh, the median price of a single detached home has gone up about 40% or nearly $200,000. And at this point in time today, 
one in five households in Calgary cannot afford their current housing, and many are still uh, really desperate in their search to to find uh, housing. So it's a it's a very acute issue, but it's also a live issue and a real wet clay moment because today council a council committee is debating a suite of about sixty different uh, affordable housing actions, and I think there none of it. I, I wouldn't say the entire suite is great or perfect, but it's a good start. It's there's a lot in there to unpack, but I think it also shows a little bit of shift of mentality, right? We've had a lot of finger pointing between provincial governments, federal governments, municipal governments. Hey, the province isn't paying enough, or the feds say, hey, that's not our primary responsibility, or the municipalities say, hey, we only have property taxes as a lever to work with. But I think here in Calgary, what we're seeing is potentially, depending on the vote and whether or not that strategy is amended or watered down. But I think what we're seeing here today in terms of what's on the table is a made in Calgary solution that really boldly says that, you know, it doesn't matter whose responsibility it is, but here in this city, we're going to decide that somebody somewhere needs to be the first mover. It can be us, it should be us, and it's going to be us. Uh, Marie Jose, for the benefit of people that will hear this on the podcast, I'll let them know that, 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 that you, you are enthusiastically nodding your head as Jeremy's talking. And, and in, in particular, I noticed it as he said, a made-in-Calgary solution. But but hang on a second. Do, do we need a, a made-in-North Vancouver solution and a made-in-Calgary solution? and a made in Thunder Bay solution or or is this a made in Ottawa solution I, I I take a look at a recent editorial that you penned in the Toronto Star people can check it out the headline reads prioritizing people over profit is the way forward on the housing crisis and you say that the road to get there is the feds investing in non-market housing Who, whose lap does this fall into well, this falls in everyone's lap. You know, the complication of the housing crisis is that it's multi-jurisdictional, you know, not just around the municipal, provincial, territorial and federal levels, but also indigenous governments as well. I mean, the country is very vast and we need a national strategy. And I say national because people move in this country and I've worked on the ground uh, in housing and homelessness uh, for almost 20 years. I've worked as a developer as well uh, in nonprofits and housing co-ops. And I see when people have an ounce of hope, they will move from one city to another. They'll leave everything behind. So, and, and my family did it too. We moved from Northern Quebec when I was four years old to Edmonton and um, because of economic reasons. And um, so people do that and they do that all the time, but where they land, um, you know, they can't be victims of their own success. So, uh, but that being said, I really agree with Jeremy. It, it needs to be, uh, you know, it needs to reflect the local, uh, the local efforts because it's the people on the ground and it's usually municipal governments that are closest to the issues. So you need federal leadership, federal involvement, federal programs, federal dollars, also matched by provincial government. And then the province is responsible for the Residential Tenancies Act. So, um, you know, how is the landlord-tenant relationship defined? And we need a standard um, relationship or to standardize that relationship so that it's not different for people the minute they cross a bridge, for example, with Ottawa to Gatineau. And um, because again, people are looking for places where they will be successful, not just survive, but thrive. Um, so I agree with all of it, but we do need federal leadership on this. And uh, I think, you know, one of the biggest downfalls and 
how we got here, if we want to explore that, is that, you know, the federal government got out of the housing game in the 90s. And, um, you know, and that was a big mistake. So we, we're seeing the federal government being reinvolved uh, since 2015, 2017, the National Housing Strategy, and then the National Housing Strategy Act of 2019. But these things take time. And then I can point to the past 30 years um, for in general across the country, but if you're Indigenous, uh, that failure has been existing for at least a century. So the country's big. We need local local um, involvement uh, to reflect, um, you know, the local needs. And so, Jeremy, though, I'm really excited to ask you this question, if I may. You Please say do. One yeah, sure. One in five people in Calgary are experiencing housing precarity, and it's around mostly affordability. Um, are these homeowners or are these people that rent? It's both, right? Uh, regardless, you're paying somebody's mortgage somewhere unless uh, you're one of the few that uh, own the house outright and you have a landlord who is doesn't have uh, sort of that the, those cost increases. But I would say that uh, for a long time, we've sort of rested on our laurels. We've assumed that uh, Calgary will continue to uh, sort of sprawl in the fashion that it has. Uh, we've assumed that uh, we can keep services high and taxes low, but it's all sort of everything's come to roost simultaneously. But there's a lot of exciting things that uh, I think Calgary is trying to do that is specific, as you mentioned, sort of the, to the Calgary context, right? So not every municipality is made the same in terms of what, say, provincial authorities have been delegated to them. Not everyone has the same uh, fiscal capacity in terms of, say, uh, residential versus versus commercial tax base but uh, as mentioned right it's every order of government needs to pull in the same direction simultaneously and there's also the uh i think that there's a lot of uh help i think coming from some of the, the soul searching that's happening right now in the conservative movement right i, I think seeing pierre polyev and the uh, federal conservatives really take the ball on housing and really run with it and push it so hard i think has really uh, helped give say some cover to traditionally uh, conservative city councillors who might be willing to go up to bat and say, hey, we need to look at uh, uh, some of the exclusionary zoning policies that we've had, or say we need to look at things like, say, for me personally, I, I think, say, eliminating parking minimums is, is, is too much. But on the other hand, right there, if we are thinking more about where cars will sleep than where human beings will, I think we're in really big trouble, which is why uh, it's sort of cynical to say never waste a crisis, but we're in a real wet clay moment where things can happen that could never happen otherwise, and they can happen faster because of the issue that we're in. But I think regardless of provincial, federal, or municipal politics, if your voters cannot afford a, a roof over their heads, that is not going to vote well for any incumbent, right? So you have to have a plan. So it's a matter of just what are you going to do on this rather than are you going to do anything? Jennifer, you, you see this obviously based on your career experience from a number of different angles. What do you make of what we're talking about to this point? Well, it's kind of funny. Um, change happens when you start to reach that point of um, political alignment across the spectrum. And I thought it was wonderful yesterday that the conservative leader was saying they stole my ideas. Um, and it was it was wonderful for two reasons, because he wasn't saying um, for removing the GST is a bad idea. He was actually saying, oh, we think we think this needs to happen as well. So all of a sudden you've got both sides of the political spectrum arguing for the same solutions and that can be a very powerful place 
for advancing change. And by the way, the GST, the liberals were slow to implement it, but it was in their 2015 um, campaign platform. There's a lot of good things that from 2015 just haven't happened. And now I think because of that political alignment across the political um, perspective, um, they've kind of got some um, motivation, quite frankly, to uh, be acting on things that may have seemed controversial in the past. There's also, you know, um, I appreciate the comment from uh, Jeremy about the made in, in Calgary solution, but the truth is almost all these solutions that are being advanced are exactly the same in cities across Canada. Mm. Um, if you look at the, you know, ending exclusionary zoning, uh, we did that. It, we did that in Toronto about a year ago. Victoria did it a little bit before we did. Edmonton did it a little earlier than that. Now Calgary, um, as of last night, is doing the same thing as is London. As is so, a lot of these solutions actually they're kind of we have broken um, frameworks both on the planning side and the delivery side across the country. And so the solutions that we need are kind of pretty similar everywhere. Um, it's a it's a national problem. And the way we're going to solve it is by taking some of these very big ideas that are going to drive supply and start solving them everywhere as well. So we have a labor shortage. We have a really high cost of construction. That is another really big thing that we need to tackle. The solution for that is going to be pretty much the same, whether you're in Calgary or whether you're you're in Toronto. We need to be building up skilled trades. We need to be focusing on panelization and to a certain extent the way um, using modules can deliver housing more quickly. Uh, so, you know, I actually think the fact that we're now having a national conversation about these issues is critical because, look, the beginning of my career, we used to point to Vancouver and we used to say, how do people live there? It's so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, now you say that about places like Guelph, Ontario and Regina, <laughs> right? With what we used to only say about Vancouver, it has become um, excessively expensive to access housing in this country everywhere, which is kind of a clue that we have a national problem. I, I would just jump in briefly and say that the, the legislation is so different and sometimes uh, it's not ob always obvious. So, for example, in Ontario, secondary suites were allowed provincially by the government many years ago by right. Whereas myself, as a city councillor in 2018, we were debating individually, individual granny suites. We would actually spend two hours of the city council meeting. An applicant would come in and say they would like their grandmother to live in the basement. We would look... I'm not even exaggerating, but city council, all 15 of us for a city of 1.5 million people, we would be debating for two hours the individual secondary Hey, I think I mocked you for that. I think I put out a tweet <laughs> mocking you guys. So um... <laughs> so, so it's, it's interesting just to see uh, how the legislation is so different uh, from province to province, because we, we like to think of cities as sort of the, the creature of the province, but I would prefer to say we're the first order, we're the we're really where the rubber hits the road with some of these opportunities and potentials. And uh, as well as some of the fundamentals are different, right? With Calgary struggling with say 20, 30% office commercial vacancy, right? The opportunities and challenges are different at the uh, 
uh, at really at the municipal level. And I'm not going to say what works in Calgary won't work in Toronto or, or vice versa, but it is very good, uh, as uh, Ryan, you, you alluded to before, that there seems to be a broader sort of uh, cross-partisan consensus for action of some kind of type. And I need to jump in here, too, to talk about how people living in Calgary have different expectations of when they're compared to people who are living in Toronto around what kind of housing they want and they need and why they are in these particular cities. And then there's the mid-sized cities and the smaller cities. We're seeing a crisis in urban area, rural areas as well, um, you know, and in northern regions. So, you know, this is not just a, a big city or um you know, huge metropolis, Vancouver, Toronto versus everybody else. But, you know, I think you said it, the flavor, the expectations of people around what they should get for housing, what they can get for the price, but also for the opportunities um, that each municipality presents. These are all things that people are considering when they want to set down roots. We're talking about setting down roots. We're talking about home ownership. I think we also need to talk about the rental space. Because if we're talking about the crisis, you know, people who have mortgages pay themselves and one day those payments will stop. If you're renting the payments, you're paying someone else's mortgage. And, you know, it is not um, it's one third of the population in Canada who rent, but they're the ones who are hurt the most and have the least amount of protections uh, around housing precarity. So, you know, every time we talk about affordability in Canada around housing, somehow that conversation always goes to home ownership mm. and the latter model the expectation that everyone should be able to buy a house does everyone want to buy a house uh first of all and should that be a single detached home in an urban setting we know that in toronto vancouver that's pretty impossible these days and that's is that the expectation and i think you know always framing housing policy in that latter model is a huge mistake. There is one third of the population that will always need rentals. That is where we've got a lot of lack of supply. So when we talk about the supply issue, absolutely we need more supply in Canada. We need supply everywhere, but we need the right kind of supply. And $800,000 homes at Edmonton and Calgary prices, which would translate to about 2 million if you're in Toronto or Vancouver, is not the right kind of supply. I was um, looking at, uh, you know, Marie uh, 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 Jennifer, let me just say real quick here. I, I wanted to pop this in. Uh, we, we've, we've, when we announced the three of you uh, joining us this morning, uh, we, we were flooded with emails and I, I've, I've printed off about 10 of them. And I, I, I'm going to try to get to as many as I can. And I want to honor these people's time. But like Allison, for example, and, and Jennifer will hand you the conch in just a second. But Allison says, you know, she says, I think it's important. She says, I know that a lot of people are going to be asking, for example, in, you know, instead of focusing on the question of how much do home prices need to drop? She says it's important to focus instead on CMHC affordability thresholds that no more than 30 percent of gross income before taxes be spent on housing. She says, obviously, a lot of people would be exceeding this right now. Uh, housing affordability obviously depends on one's income. What's affordable for one person, not affordable for another. Using the metric to guide these discussions, that means, for example, a half a million dollar home, um, you know, and, and people in Vancouver and Toronto are snickering at that, but, but a half a million dollar home uh, would be affordable, she says, to purchase for a household earning about 150 grand a year. For a rental scenario, a rental rate of 2,000 a month would be so-called affordable, for a household earning 80000 a year. So the question should be, how do we incent the construction of differently priced units to meet the needs of various incomes and work toward what Allison says should be the ultimate goal where nobody is spending in excess of 30% of their gross income 
on housing. Jennifer, what do you make of that? Well, the first thing I'll say is that um, when I'm talking about housing in this conversation, I'm actually talking about rental housing. Mm. And because we have a lot of preconceived ideas of what a home is, often people... Um, often people think we're talking about a house with a picket fence and, and a three-car garage. When I'm talking about a home, I'm actually talking about, for those who can see this, a home is what you see in the backdrop here. These are high-quality rental homes, 30% of which are affordable in perpetuity. This that, that doesn't get more stable. You can raise your family, you can retire in old age in a neighborhood, in a community within walking distance to transit, a grocery store, a daycare, a coffee shop in the heart of the community. Um, and that's a home. And, um, and I think from a human rights perspective, that's a home. Um, and that's our development, by the way. That's our Tyndale Green development where we're building um, 1,500 1, 1500 new homes in a walkable community where we provide prioritized affordable housing. Because I think this gets back to a problem that we have in our mind right now, and we somehow have to detach this is the difference between something that is a financial tool versus what's a home, a place where you sit at the kitchen table and you do homework with your kids, where your family drops by, that's a home. A financial tool that is going to serve you in retirement is actually something different. Mm -hmm. And we've actually mixed those things up. And when you mix those things up, then you end up in this problem where to get to your question, yeah, you're never going to have homes that are 30% of the average income because those two things go in conflict. If housing is a financial tool, by definition, it is going to be unaffordable for the majority of the population because that's how people make money on their housing right. is by it being a financial tool. So if we separate those things and we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we got all mixed up here. Housing should be a home. And where I we want people to have the choice to live in the type of housing that is going to meet their needs. And I think we've mixed up what will meet our needs. We think mix, meeting our needs is about a financial investment. And we really have to separate those things out. For most Canadians, living in a high quality, stable rental building that is um, uh, that is linked to their income. So, you know, I'm accepting here housing that has crazy rent increases, which is not the majority of housing in Canada, by the way. There's a lot of housing that is actually rent controlled. Um, that is actually going to be financially a better option than investing in the housing market today. The housing market today is very wonky um, with the changes in interest rates for a lot of people this is one of the reasons you have one in five people in Calgary right now who can't afford their home. It's because of the amount of money they're paying on interest. They're not actually generating any kind of equity. They're paying so much money on interest on a loan for that home. So we've, we've, we've got to disavow this myth that housing is always a good financial tool. And look, it was a great financial tool for my parents. They bought a home in 1970 was also the year that I was born. At that time, 
The home cost $42,000. It was a three-bedroom family home. It cost $42,000 for them to buy. And my dad's salary as a blue-collar worker was $24,000. So the home was double, double his income, right? Um, Today, the average home is more than 14 times the average income in both Calgary, sorry, in both Vancouver and Toronto. So this idea that a home is always going to be a nest egg for everyone, that may have been true in the past. It's not going to be true in the future. And that's why thinking about building really high quality rental housing that is a good home um, that people can afford, that's how you're going to get to come back to your question to the 30% of income. It's going to be through high quality rental housing that has some kind of Uh, rent control. We've self-imposed rent control in our community. We're doing that because we want to create communities. We're not trying to create a financial asset. We're trying to create a community where people can be safely housed and stably housed in a community where they can thrive. And if the math works with getting the development built, then you don't need to be raising the rent at astronomical rates in perpetuity. You don't need to do that. Uh, that's uh... here. Sorry. Um, first of all, you know, the rent control is a lot of the provinces in Canada have rent control. However, they don't have vacancy control. And this is usually where we're seeing the rents increase at astronomical rates uh, is when someone moves out and the process of getting someone to move out. Um, there's been a lot of abuse in that um, in rent evictions or, um, you know, citing um, people to get out because you want to use the unit for yourself or for your family or bullying or illegal evictions. And I saw a lot of that on the ground when I was doing housing loss prevention. That's an aside, however. Um, Jennifer, I'm really interested in in how you're going to do this affordability for a broad spectrum of people. Um, and, and it's amazing that your organization is doing this, but there's a whole lot of organizations that are trying to profit at all costs. And so what we do need is a standard regulations around all of this, that it can't just sit on the goodwill of organizations because that's what governments do. Governments need to have regulations so that they set the framework in the same same way that they set human right to housing as a framework and i'm this is new in canada and i'm glad that that this is part of your um your organization's values um and and this is such an amazing start and i think a lot of organizations have they want to do this they need to learn how how to make it work and, but uh, what do we do with the organizations that are profiting at all costs? On and you're and right, it's regulation. Everybody, it's reg. It's regulation. I agree with everything that you just said, and I think the problem right now is that we have an unregulated housing environment, and it's it's compromising affordability. It's compromising access to housing. I agree with everything that you just said. Jeremy, I, I, I want to ask you if, if uh, and, and, and maybe I'm just coming into this at like an elementary school level of, of political analysis, but I, but I wonder if, if the conservative in you, Jeremy, bristles a little bit at all this talk of, of government getting involved in markets. And, 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 and I want to get to that with you in just a second. Well, that, that's Jennifer Keysmat that you're hearing. That's Marie-José Houle and Jeremy Farkas, our guests on a, a, a rapidly progressing Real Talk Roundtable. I wish I had these three for three hours, but we don't. 
Uh, we're back to them in less than two minutes. Right now, I wanted to let you know that this conversation doesn't happen without partners like our friends at Athabasca University. It's Canada's open university and whether you're catching this conversation from the West Coast, the East Coast, or, or somewhere in between, Athabasca University, chances are, is going to be a great fit for you. If you're looking to advance your post-secondary goals, maybe prepare yourself for a new opportunity in the job market, their world-class accredited online programs and courses offer you the flexibility to learn at your own pace on a schedule that suits your lifestyle. You want to know the coolest part about this? Nearly 90%, 9 out of 10 of Athabasca University graduates say that they're working in a job related to their field of study and 95% of them, more than 95%, would recommend AU to others. You're not going to get ringing endorsements like that every day. You can get the application process started right now or just learn more about studying at AU by visiting AthabascaU.ca. If you're looking for a new career in renewable or sustainable energy, the team at Kubi Energy would love to hear from you. They're currently looking for electricians and apprentices in BC and Alberta, Lethbridge, Calgary, Edmonton, Kamloops, you name it. They're hiring project coordinators, customer service reps, solar sales reps, and installers. This is your chance to work within a dynamic and innovative company that's revolutionizing the renewable energy industry in Canada. You'll also be working alongside dedicated professionals passionate about what they do. You can start that process today. Get in touch with them by visiting kubienergy.ca. The same deal goes with Apex Automation. It's Canada's fastest growing automation firm, and they're looking for professional engineers. That's right. If you're a PNG right now, but where you're working, you're not feeling motivated. You don't feel appreciated. You don't feel stimulated. You know that you have way more to give, but the current situation, well, it's not, well, it's just not giving you that opportunity. Apex Automation is operating across the Prairie Provinces. They're in BC. They're even down in the Lone Star state of Texas, bringing businesses toward a point of better efficiency, maximizing their profits, and rewarding their people. You can check out the careers link today if this has caught your attention and you'd like to join the team at Apex Automation. And before we get back to our Real Talk Roundtable, we want to remind you who built this studio that we're operating out of. It's the team at Complete Care Restoration. If you're considering a renovation or construction project, if all this talk about housing inventory, if all this talk about addressing Canada's housing crisis has you thinking about a conversion of a building or maybe an entirely new opportunity related to building out a space that you know has a whole lot more to give, if you're in the province of Alberta, you're going to want to check out CompleteCareRestoration.ca. We've worked with them. We're proud to partner with them, and we've seen their professionalism on display. You can find them online under the Sponsors tab on our website. That's the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. We're hanging out with uh, Canada's federal housing advocate. That's Marie-Jose Houle. We're talking to Jennifer Keysmat, formerly the chief planner of Toronto. She's uh, founder of Marquee Developments. And obviously, uh, Jeremy Fark is a familiar name to our Alberta audience uh, as a politician here in the province of Alberta. Jeremy, we've got people writing in. Uh, I got this interesting email here from Millwoods Jimmy, who says, you know, the conservatives are talking a lot. Uh, Pierre Poliev is in particular about expanding housing. But I wonder how they can do this, considering a significant 
significant portion of their base is the not in my backyard type. And you can take issue with that if you like. He says, maybe older, maybe wealthier. But he says, but if you throw out words like 15 minute cities to the conservative base, they get almost hostile. How is it possible for Pierre Polyev to promise to get more housing built and keep his base happy at the same time? Or is it even possible? What would you say to Millwood's Jimmy? Well, there, it's there's no way around it. I think there's a lot of soul searching going on right now. But when you look, take a look fundamentally in terms of property rights, I think it's a conservative value to say I want to be able to do what I want with my property so long as I'm not infringing on other people's peaceful enjoyment, right? And the fact is that uh, building more homes is the best way to increase affordability. And the, the way to build more homes is to make it easier and uh, faster to build them. And Nothing's going to change unless we build more and we build it faster. And I think Steve LaFleur put it pretty well in that there's sort of two parallel crises happening right now, one of too much government and one of not enough government. So I think the left is going to have to uh, really acknowledge that it's the private sector, it's developers, it's all of the the private capital that's going to have to be deployed in almost, uh, I think Mike Moffat says, a wartime type of effort to be able to uh, build the amount that we need. But I think the right is going to have to also accept that uh, we're going to have to see significant increases to the investment in terms of affordable uh, housing stock. And again, uh, unless the market housing uh, stock increases significantly, I think the, the percentage of people who need affordable housing is just going to increase. But when it comes to regulation, at least in the Calgary context, the kind of housing that uh, people think of when they think of the greatest cities in the world, say row housing, walk-up apartments, and so on, is effectively uh, illegal to build in uh, most of Calgary. And we're, we're preventing developers and landowners from meeting the market demand uh, for this sort of housing. And then just to respond again to the initial comment in that, you know, it seems to be working for Pierre Polyad, right? The, the, the premise is that you can't do all of these things and... Uh, and keep your base. Well, it looks like the at this point, the federal conservatives are 10, 15 points ahead, right? So I wouldn't uh, necessarily agree that it isn't working and that most conservatives fundamentally do agree in sort of the, 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 the premise of property rights, all of these things. And it is uncomfortable, but it seems to be working at least uh, for now. Jennifer, there's there, there's there's a lot of talk. People will invoke developers and you could be talking about all kinds of businesses and all types of scenarios. But I think it's fair to say that that on one hand, developers can be demonized in conversations about affordable housing or the housing crisis. And on the other hand, if we're going to build three and a half million units uh, by 2030, we need developers. Uh, I'm curious for your insights on this. Maybe, maybe the leadoff question might be what needs to change in the relationship between uh, developers, industry and government? Well, I think in part there needs to be a better understanding of what it is that developers do. There's lots of different players that come to the table in a development process. You've got equity, private equity companies that fund development projects. You've got the construction industry. You've got the design industry and the technical expertise, you know, people who have expertise in uh, stormwater management, for for example. Then you've got the regulatory players like the province and the municipality. And the developer actually sits at the nexus of all of that and has to bring all of the pieces together in order to execute a development project. Now, this is the great irony. 
there's, um, if you look at a typical development, um, let's take a greenfield development for simplicity. Um, during COVID, when prices were going through the roof, we had a very interesting thing that was happening, which was developers who often spent, you know, maybe let's say they'd spent five or six years getting their approvals, hiring the construction company, dealing with the high cost of lumber, building the houses, they get the house built, someone moves into the house, someone flips that house. This happened a lot in COVID. They lived in the house for a couple of years and they sell it. They make a profit. How do you think that profit compares to the profit of the developer who went through that five-year process, took on all the risk and built the housing? The, the developer's profit is very, very small in comparison to the profit of the flipper, <laughs> as an example. So I think there's like a really, like, I do think part of why we have a housing crisis in Canada is that we've really demonized an industry that we need. We need the development industry to build housing. I'm not sure who else people expect to build housing, because I will tell you something, Governments don't actually build housing. They don't pick up a hammer and hammer in the nail or hire the drywaller. Governments don't do that. And to be honest, we don't want them to do that. Um, they can't, they, they struggle even just to contract with developers to build things and to project manage, let alone being the one actually having a construction team that they're responsible for. So developers are at the center of solving this problem. And it's funny because I hear so much about developer profits um, and absolutely some projects are incredibly profitable and some profits are not. And you can lose your shirt if you, you know, there's a lot of projects right now coming on market in Toronto where the developers are losing their shirt because guess what happened? Housing prices have gone down by 20% in the past year. So that wasn't the market that they thought they were going to be selling into. So there's a, a lot of risk involved. If it was easy to develop housing if there was just this inconceivable astronomical amount of profit at everyone's fingertips. Why isn't everyone doing it? Because we know there's an insatiable amount of demand. Well, everyone isn't doing it because it's actually very difficult. It's actually incredibly difficult and involves a tremendous amount of risk. So I think we need to flip the narrative on the development industry. I think we do ourselves a disservice. We need our developers. And by the way, Every single not-for-profit not unit built in this country over the past 10 years was also built by a private sector developer, just so you know, mm. a not-for-profit organization. 90% uh, of the time partnered with a for-profit developer who built that home. It was the same drywaller electrician who does a for-profit unit, does a not-for-profit unit. So we've got to get away from this idea that the people who build housing are bad because honestly, we need more people building housing. It's a really hard space to be in given all of the uncertainty that exists right now. Um, if I was smart, um, I wouldn't be doing development. Like if it was just about making money, I would have bought up single family homes two years ago with all of my capital instead of putting it into development projects. It's a way easier way to make a tremendous <laughs> amount of money. Um, but we need housing supply and uh, we need to be drawing more players who have the expertise into building housing supply. And until we do that, we're not going to get more housing. So I really think we have a really broken narrative about who developers are and what they do. And look, we've got a massive housing shortage. We need more people in this space, not less. Um, Jennifer, like I, 
you have such a beautiful talent of just um, taking something and, and, and using words that people can connect with a concept. And it's amazing. I love it. Um, and I used to work as a developer and there's a reason why I'm not anymore. It is hard. <laughs> it's it is so hard. And, and it, you know, it is, it, there's so many risks, but you know, we, and we were developing not-for-profit and housing co-ops. And, and, you know, the funding programs for those, uh, for that kind of development in Ontario was almost impossible. So, but not all developers are the same. And sometimes developers are also flippers, mm -hmm. you know, especially in the condo sure. construction. So how do we change that narrative? But again, properly define what is a good developer, what is a, a developer that nobody should be losing their shirt. But then we're also seeing this crisis and and the scandal in in Toronto around the green belt. Ooh. So so yeah 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 yeah. So you know again, big country. This very you know we're talking about Toronto, which is the center of the universe, and and it is an orbit in, unto itself. And I can't you know having lived in Alberta, I don't feel that Toronto and Calgary are the same. But we're still addressing these issues and. And, and how do we define what is appropriate for a developer, what is appropriate for housing ownership or ownership of, of purpose-built rentals? Because if we're going to talk about Toronto, we should also talk about the, um, you know, the speculation and around uh, the ownership of purpose-built rentals. And most importantly, regardless of what we build, how do we keep it affordable in perpetuity? Because this is what we want. We're looking at the national housing strategy. We're looking at GST cuts. That's money that, that government had other uses for. So how do we best use precious taxpayers' assets, which is money, to build something that benefits everyone and doesn't benefit just a few because you're right we need sectors we need industry it is you know we've got a supply chain issue still we've we're going to have a shortage of labor we already do it's the same cranes that we need to build a nonprofit or a purpose built rental mm -hmm. for the private market but more doesn't automatically mean affordability so absolutely if i you know if i can just jump in just for a second just a couple of really critical things that i think you've that you've said there and it goes back to your comment earlier about regulation this is why this cannot be such an unregulated industry because it's always a bad thing in a society to assume people will do things out of the goodness of their heart sure uh they won't right every single developer in the city of toronto that stands up and brags about the affordable housing that they've built as part of their condo development do you know why they built it because we made them we made them in regulation when i was chief planner and you know what they did they fought me tooth and nail they said it would ruin the project they said it would destroy their performa and guess what people are living in those affordable units now so you need to get the regular regulatory context right that's absolutely critical the only way i would say that other places are similar to toronto toronto's a little bit out ahead you know we're ahead on the secondary suites um, but there's a lot of things that we can do that are the same from from one jurisdiction to the next. The other just quick comment I'll make is that, you know, how much money does the government collect on a rental unit, GST, that doesn't get built? Mm -hmm. They collect zero. 
So if we have a policy in place to remove the GST and that enables a developer to build rental housing that wouldn't have gotten built any otherwise, there's no there's no monies that are disappearing from the federal coffers. Well, in fact, they're gaining money, right? From they're gaining money. The, the they're, exactly. Yeah. Through a whole series of other taxes. And we've done the analysis somewhere of the amount of money the government gains by forgiving the GST, because on our projects, it actually, on a few of them, as I outlined earlier, it flips them into viability. So, you know, a, a project that we're not going to build, well, guess what? Now we are going to build it. There's a whole series of other taxes the government's collecting on that. So that's why the GST forgiving is such a powerful public policy. We're not taking, you know, any money out of anywhere. We're not robbing Peter to pay Paul here. We're literally using a forgiving, a forgiveness mechanism to actually generate other revenues for the government and to generate mm -hmm. housing. Jeremy, I want to go to you, but but first, let me let me integrate or, or introduce another email from from a real talker. This is from Mister Dad, uh, who who chimed in at talk at ryanjesperson.com says uh, to your panel, "I'm very disappointed in the choices our elected representatives have been making around densification as a means to achieve affordable housing and sustainable development. Although many Albertans prefer to blame Justin Trudeau, affordable housing issues in the province are almost entirely the jurisdiction of municipalities that are guided by provincial legislation." like the Municipal Governance Act. Uh, beyond densification, most new developments do not reflect any of the principles of smart growth or sustainability. Uh, a quick lap, uh, here's references to Calgary and Edmonton, around Stony Trail or the Anthony Henday Drive confirms that urban sprawl continues at a shocking pace. Prime agricultural land, green space, uh, we could talk about the green belt, constantly being stripped and paved as generic subdivisions spread out. Uh, these new communities often isolated, established uh, isolated from established public transit corridors, uh, resulting in increased car dependency and traffic congestion. They lack trees, which prevent erosion. They improve air quality, obviously capture carbon and improve energy efficiency by providing shade. Meanwhile, countless already serviced and conveniently located inner city Greyfield sites sit derelict. Says Mr. Dad, I challenge the legitimacy mm -hmm. for all this drama and panic in the first place. A quick search of MLS listings indicates that right now there are more than 500 homes priced under $300,000 in Calgary and thrice that many in Edmonton. Canada was just named the second best country in the world by the U.S. News and World Report's global mm -hmm. survey. Housing crisis, says Mr. Dad. What housing crisis? What would you say to him, Jeremy? Well, tell that to anybody who's getting a six hundred, eight hundred thousand dollar rent increase. Jennifer's uh, tearing year, her hair right? out, by the way, for the podcast. <laughs> and, and, uh, the, the the data is there, right? Like CMHC says that uh, we need, I think, it's three and a half, uh, even more, perhaps million additional units needed by twenty thirty to be able to make Canadian housing affordable again. And we we see some good steps with, say, the the GST rebate. I think is going to contribute. I think uh, Mike Moffat had estimated between two hundred and three hundred thousand dollar, or two hundred three hundred thousand additional units, about ten percent to be able to get us there. But this is a difficult issue because it's very anecdotal, right? Uh, people contact their counselor based on their own uh, personal experience. And it's almost like an issue that uh, you can't 
use data to change somebody's mind on a position that they felt their way into, right? But at a minimum, I think when you take a look at uh, the the hits that Calgary and Edmonton are going to take, if we do not uh, address housing affordability, it's going to be significant. Uh, we've rested on our laurels for affordability for so long. And when we think about a global integrated economy, many CEOs or business owners will tell you they'll optimize for quality of life and affordability for their employees, right? So you can't operate in any jurisdiction unless you're able to attract people to uh, live there and to be able to retain that talent, especially when a lot of work can be done uh, remotely, right? So part of it is also the politics, right? I think there's a fear of change uh, here in Calgary and the Herald, our main newspaper, there's actually an opinion editorial that suggested if we make minor increases to density, that is going to put our way of life at risk. Mm. The kids uh, literally won't be able to go walk down the street to go get ice cream at the local shop and stuff like that. And for me, as a as, especially as a former conservative uh, city hall politician, I, I heard a lot of that, and I sort of fell into the trap of thinking of property taxes as the way to keep life affordable. Right? Okay, so if I if only I could solve for property taxes, then I'm doing my job. Then you have to consider it's only maybe three quarters fewer who actually pay property taxes. And if I'm solving for giving you say $10 less on your property tax bill, but I'm making you have an additional car or I'm raising your transit bus pass by another 15 or 30 or $50 a month, that's not actually saving affordability period. So I think the challenge has been on uh, people like me and other fiscal conservatives to say, all right, we can't talk about taxes. We need to talk about holistically affordability. It's mobility, it's transportation, it's housing it's fees, it's all of this together. And the fundamentals are there. We cannot continue as we have previously. There's a fun, I think, Venn diagram I saw on Twitter in terms of high quality services, uh, low density and low taxes. And you can't have all three uh, simultaneously, right? So I think that we can responsibly uh, increase development. I think we can have better expectations of our developers, but ultimately we're not going to be able to build the amount that we need. Uh, unless we have that wartime effort that we deploy all the capital possible. And, you know, I'm going to call out our uh, city council here. And I'll say, if you have a billion dollars for a brand new arena for the flames, if you've solved affordable housing for the flames, you can solve it for everybody else. Consider if you have $1 billion of capital, if you could deploy that for affordable housing in the city of Calgary, that would functionally end homelessness. So the question is not, can they? The question is, will they? And will local politicians actually have the courage to be bold and to push back against some of those fears for me i spent a lot of my career pushing back against zoning reforms i felt that my job was to protect people's way of life i thought it was to protect people from i don't know what change protect them from the future protect them from their neighbors it just in in hindsight it just doesn't make sense and i think that uh, it's not just bad policy it's bad politics to continue on as we have. And again, this is such a tremendous wet clay moment that it's not going to be possible for these incumbents to be reelected if they if their voters don't have a roof over their heads. Uh, that's Jeremy Farkas speaking. I want to let you know for anybody that's been watching on YouTube right now, there's a brief technical difficulty outside our control. We are still streaming. We're still available on the Mixler live audio app. And obviously, everybody's going to hear this podcast in its entirety. Uh, we, we've reached the point to, we, to which we've asked you three to stay. And we know you've got a lot on your plates today. So I want to respect your time. I want to I sort of provide an opportunity here for a, for a closing statement of sorts. 
something that we can walk with and think about, a takeaway. This would also, of course, be our panelists' opportunity to, to bring something to the table that maybe we haven't yet touched on that's important to consider. Uh, Marie-José Hull, what's, what's one thing you'd like our audience across the country to be thinking about over the weekend or into next week as they're talking to their friends, their colleagues, their neighbors about the housing crisis? Well, being the federal housing advocate and um, my role of holding governments to account on their human rights obligations around the right to housing, uh, which is a new concept, new framework, is, is you know, that, that people need to be at the center of that conversation. So what is it that humans get? So we talk about the economy, we talk about all kinds of things, but but what about the people, right? And for whom are we building? And Jennifer hit it really well, is that, you know, we need affordability in perpetuity. We need affordability to um, not just talk about the median income of a city, but the actual incomes of the people who live in a city. Um, and that, you know, if we start there, we're going to have solutions across all municipalities in this country. It, we need uh, federal leadership but we need all governments to to come to the table and to to work this out and we need regulation because deregulation has not worked um and we need a common vision what is it we want and it needs to be people centered so that um you know housing is not just affordable it 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 meets people's needs it is adequate it is habitable um, and um, that, you know, we need a range of housing options for people. We didn't talk today about um, homelessness and encampments mm. and where the concentration of the housing crisis is really hit with the people who have, you know, the 20th uh, lowest percentile. And it's not just about mental health and addictions. It's people who's, who work and who can't afford a roof over their heads. So, um, you know, again, we can't always devolve the conversation to home ownership, though that is a part of the conversation that everyone has a role to play. Industry has a role to play. Developers have a role to play. But the, the playing field needs to be properly defined so that housing is a home, is a place that meets our basic needs as human beings and not an investment vehicle. Marie Jose, I'm so glad you made that very important point. I appreciate that. Uh, Jennifer, what's the one? I mean, there's a million takeaways from this conversation, but one, what's one you want to make sure you put on the record? Well, the biggest takeaway is probably going to be a bit unexpected because sometimes these conversations can sound a lot the same, but I don't think this one has. And my biggest takeaway actually comes from the comments that Jeremy just made, which honestly, Jeremy, you've made my day and I'll tell you why. <laughs> Um, unlike you as a, 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 you know, a convert to some of the, you know, the importance of a diversity of housing types and, and densification and those kinds of things, I've spent the past 25 years of my life in this space talking about the importance of housing for all and, um, pushing things like many, many years ago, secondary suites, the garden suites that we have now reforming our planning and zoning so that we're building housing near transit um, so that we can reduce our carbon footprint while also creating walkable communities while also reducing reducing the cost of living and i have to say that i have always believed that um we will change this country through um conversations where we debate ideas 
uh, the foundation of democracy um, and where we allow people to change their minds. And I've changed my mind on a lot of things over the past 25 years. I've changed my mind on a lot of things even very recently now that I'm a developer and I spend 90% of my time going over pro formas and talking to bankers, trying to unlock our projects yeah. and accessing financing. I've really changed my mind about a lot of things. And I just want to say that I think the biggest takeaway from this conversation for me is that sometimes we like, you know, we talk about the polarization in the country, you know, Alberta being an island unto itself. Um, this conversation has shown that something interesting is happening where we're, we're actually coming closer together right now when it comes to housing. Um, and that's probably because a lot of us are shifting in different ways, but you were very straightforward about your shift. And I'm not kidding. I did actually mock your city council when you guys were having <laughs> your meetings on the garden suites. I was like, good God, how are these people going to get anything done? Um, Man, you, you haven't, it's, it, it was nuts. We would have it was nutty. It was and nutty. say, this is why I want my mother to be able to live with me as she was, grows frail. Right. And then counselors would cross-examine the, the It was nutty. It was, it was one of the nuttiest things I've seen. And I've, I'm in Toronto. I've seen a lot of nutty things in the floor of city council, but that was really nutty. Um, so I think the biggest takeaway for me is that, holy smokes, we're actually getting somewhere. And I will also just say, um, to Marie Jose's point about homelessness, the other thing that's happened that I've seen, we've done a terrible job of ensuring that everyone in this country is housed. We've done a terrible job. I am more um, encouraged than I've ever been because I cannot find anyone anywhere on the political spectrum who is okay with people living in tents in our city. Yeah. We are all outraged. We are all equally outraged for they might be for different reasons, but all of us want something done about that. That's across the political spectrum. No one is saying that's OK. No one is saying leave people who are in distress to suffer, leave them to their own devices. No, I haven't heard anyone in this country say that. So I think that, too, is a reason to be encouraged. This moment is different than any other moment I've experienced in the past 25 years. That's so well said, Jennifer. Uh, Jeremy, bring us home. Yeah, I I would just say, I think we're we're well past the point of perfect solutions. I think uh, regardless of what we do, not everyone is going to get what they want, and I think that that's uh, probably in the spirit of good compromise, right? When we're thinking of today, City Council conducting a multi-day day hearing, probably meeting until Saturday or Sunday, it's a lot easier for them to say, well, no, this isn't perfect. I'm going to wait for a fairy tale perfect solution to come along and but as i've learned like nothing worth having is is going to come without the the work right so it's a lot harder to put yourself out there and say let's build let's work let's improve as we go so if i had one message i'd say it uh, directly to our decision makers here in calgary nothing has been decided yet but uh show us that uh, our priorities are your priorities can cities go it alone no but i think again someone somewhere has to be the first mover and it can be us and because it can be us i think it has to be us that's jeremy farkas uh, a former calgary city councilor longtime advocate for affordable housing a, a ton of different initiatives make sure you, you check out his uh twitter handle for more that's jeremy yyc on what he's doing jennifer Keysmat has joined us former chief planner for the city of toronto participating in the clean economy fund and the founder of marquee developments and canada's federal housing advocate as you heard the first 
ever. Marie-José Houle uh, joining us as well. To the three of you, thank you so much for giving us an hour of your time today to talk about an issue that Canadians uh, from coast to coast to coast are telling us is the most relevant, the most pressing, and of course, one that for many, uh, they're, they're demanding uh, or have their fingers crossed at the very least for resolution. We appreciate your insights. Thank you for this. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you. You got it. Uh, Real Talkers, I want to thank you for your participation in our live chat. It was going off today, uh, which we really appreciate. And to those of you that are catching this on the Mixler live streaming audio app presented by California Closets uh, on YouTube or, of course, on the podcast, we want to let you know that this is a conversation. I mean, this is I mean, not just the beginning. We've been talking about this a little bit, but this is something that will be. Uh, touching on, referencing, uh, circling back to, and, and and we hope advancing the conversation on for, for weeks and months and, and, quite frankly, probably years. And you can drive that conversation. Uh, a shout-out to Curtis. It was Curtis who asked us to host this roundtable. It, it was one that was on our radar, an issue that we were keeping an eye on, but Curtis basically said, like, when can we expect a Real Talk roundtable on housing? And here it is. And so we thank viewers and listeners subscribers like curtis uh, that get engaged and, and tell us what's on your mind and what you'd like to hear right here on your favorite podcast we sure appreciate that these conversations are presented by real talk partners like our friends at friesen brothers who wants you to know that right now the alberta beef roundup is back this is a, an annual tradition that friesen brothers has been proud to host since 19 19- 55. How cool is that? If you go to their website, Friesen.com, that's F-R-E-S-O-N. You can learn more about it. Two options this year, uh, including a custom-cut whole hip weighing about 70 pounds, plus a 50-pound freezer pack featuring the finest Alberta beef. Skilled butchers at Friesen Brothers handle all the cutting and wrapping. You don't have to worry about that, but you tell them what you want it to look like. You tell them the way your family likes it. Now, this event... The Alberta Beef Roundup goes for just two weeks, so you're going to want to make sure you get your order in today, again, at Friesen.com. We're talking a lot about affordability these days. If you're living in and around the city of Edmonton, you may be interested to know that the members, the thousands of members of Civic Service Union 52, that's CSU 52, more than 80% of them haven't seen a raise in five years, and they're trying to get their neighbor's attention. They're trying to get their fellow community members to understand what this means for them. You can check out their website, edmontonforeveryone.ca. You know, for five years, their wages have remained stagnant, making it nearly impossible for a lot of their members to keep up. Food, shelter, as we've just been talking about, day-to-day expenses have all increased substantially. You know, city taxes, rents, the cost of milk. I mean, everything is going up. So if your wages are frozen, you know that when you take inflation into account, it's basically a pay cut. If you want to do a solid to your community members, those that are working for Civic Service Union 52, you can show your support in uh, starters by visiting edmontonforeveryone.ca and then the website makes it easy to take it from there. This weekend, if you're looking to treat yourself, maybe take a break from cooking, uh, maybe just step into a Dairy Queen in Northwest Edmonton or Sherwood Park, might I humbly suggest the sauced and tossed honey garlic chicken strip basket. Nobody does chicken like 
DQ. There's chicken, and then there's DQ, honey garlic sauced and tossed chicken strips. Their saucing technique means mouth-watering goodness in every single bite, and you will not find chicken strips like this anywhere else. We guarantee it. Now, your complete chicken strip basket served with fries and your choice of dipping sauce, you can find them at the Dairy Queens in Palisades, Nemeo, Newcastle, Westmount, and out in Sherwood Park on Baseline Road. And if your family's talking about improving your outdoor space, bringing it to life, making the most of not just your curb appeal, but your quality of life in your home, if you are a homeowner, you're going to want to get in touch with Eden Landscaping. This is a company that understands working with budgets and making the most out of a vision for a custom landscape design. So whether it's an ultra-modern look, uh, maybe it's a natural beauty look you're going for, maybe you want to integrate some native plants and grasses in, maybe you've always wanted an outdoor kitchen. Whatever it is, Eden Landscaping invites you to work with them. Their full project management means no headaches on your end. You can learn more about Eden Landscaping by checking out landscapeedmonton.ca. Do you feel any better about the housing crisis after hearing those three experts go on for an hour? <laughs> I mean, I mean, not really. <laughs> I mean, it gave me a lot of insight, but uh, yeah, it just seems like, uh, I don't know. I, I don't see any, any relief for people who maybe a few years ago thought they couldn't afford a home moving into the future. But I mean... Uh, I, I texted you this this morning. I think it's just the new reality, right? Uh, and unless uh, unless you know minimum wage goes up, cost of living comes down a bit, maybe things could 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 even out. But I, a lot of what Jennifer said was just great. Gave me a lot of insight on. You I know, love how all three it, of them are coming from yeah. really different places on it. It's not just we shouldn't demonize developers and and pe- they're they're trying to do the best they can too. They're paying through the roof prices for wood and every all the. Uh, materials they need to build homes and they want to build homes and then there's just it's it's so complicated when you've got there's so many layers you've got to incentivize or incent whatever they say you 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 got to get people willing to take the risk Mm -hmm. on these big projects Mm -hmm. and on these builds right Mm -hmm. unless you want the federal government or or whatever at any level of government left holding the bag Mm -hmm. and i do agree with uh jennifer when she said jennifer keysmat when she said I'm not sure you want government involved in all of this. You don't want government quarterbacking the builds. There were no. people in our live chat talking about how, I mean, just even in our home city, the city of Edmonton, uh, it's been a disaster mm-hmm. when the city has been in charge of developing neighborhoods or districts. Yeah. I mean, they shut down the municipal airport to build this Blatchford development. And, and uh, you know, with, with no offense intended to anybody, it's widely regarded as an absolute joke. Yeah. You know, the government should have no place in that. If mm-hmm. a private developer was in charge of that, I think it might look different. Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's really hard to wrap my head around because you think you understand one facet and then it's like there's immigration, there's building costs, there's all these things that factor We barely talked, we didn't talk about immigration. Yeah, like population is going up, right? And demand for new homes also goes up, but we can't build them fast enough. 
and it's just yeah yeah um i appreciate now we did have people listening on the podcast will have no idea it's not your problem you don't have to worry about it but we had a bit of a snafu on our youtube link so we appreciate everybody that's caught up to us again on on on, i guess what is our second stream of the morning (laughs) just in time for our weekly tradition you are just in time to hear what some real talkers have to say what they must say what they needed to say they needed to get something off their chest and they took us up on our invitation it's the invitation that's issued by our friends at local environmental services at the end of every single week a chance to blow off a little steam to take this microphone this platform and use it it's a tradition we call trash talk all right this one from ronnie who writes in and says all right i i get it i get it no major canadian party is adequately addressing the housing crisis and i'm stuck living with my mom while i find it extremely difficult to find a place of my own the liberals have announced plans to build housing in ontario but nothing much beyond that funding to construct two thousand new homes announced but it's not a stretch to say that's not even a drop in the bucket of this recommendation for three and a half million new builds over the next seven years they're putting a band-aid on a giant wound meantime the conservatives too busy running ads to either introduce one of the most insufferable politicians in the history of confederation or releasing ads that are partly misguided attacks on the carbon tax ronnie says it feels like we're in a campaign period for an election two years away they'd rather attack each other instead of working together to find common sense solutions to issues affecting the entire country that from ronnie how about this one from michelle who says uh jespo I caught your show on September 13th where you talked to uh, Dr. Greenaway and uh, Jennifer Laywetz about trans healthcare and the uh, conservative convention. Interesting interviews with both guests, but you know what's missing from your coverage of the conservative convention? The voice of actual transgender people. You know, the people being targeted by the policies that the delegates passed this weekend. It was great that you brought in Dr. Kate Greenaway. She managed to bring some light to the matter of transgender care. However, Ms. Lewitz uh, was enormously evasive of your direct questions about those anti-trans policy measures. Uh, Michelle says, let me be direct here. As a transgender person, I am beyond livid with the fact that every time a conservative party gets together to discuss policy, my right to exist or move through society in peace suddenly is put on the table for debate. You know, every single election, every policy convention, hell, even plain, ordinary political speeches, I find my existence threatened, uh, like I'm some sort of threat to other people's realities. How would you feel if your right to walk down the street was suddenly brought into question because somebody decided that your existence represented some kind of threat? Let me be abundantly clear here. That policy resolution last weekend explicitly calls for transgender women to be barred from using women's bathrooms, locker rooms, other facilities. It is very direct in calling for that. It is, in essence, saying to transgender women, very specifically, you have no right to a place in society. When basics like using a washroom when out in public are suddenly withdrawn with the force of law, what other message are people like me to take from that? Apparently, having every male body at any point in life immediately makes the individual some kind of sexual predator. I'm no predator, nor is any other transgender person I know. Yet, somehow, these folks have cooked up an image of trans people that includes being a predator as some sort of intrinsic trait. So where I sit, the conservative base went off and adopted a bunch of policies that have no basis in objective reality, with all the obvious intent to erase me and mine from society. 
No party that wants to erase an entire subgroup from society to assuage the fears of a few who choose to be ill-informed deserves a chance at power. That from Michelle. Michelle, thanks for sharing. And this one from Morgan who says, that part of your episode earlier this week on Tuesday where you read Garth's email. Remember Garth was a little tough on the comment yeah. that you made, Johnny? So so here Morgan says, I want to preface this by saying this is not a personal attack on Garth or anybody that's right of center politically. While somebody like him is entitled to their opinion, whatever happened to the nuance or the context of the message being delivered, instead of just hearing what you want because your mind's already made up. Garth basically was saying that we were like left-leaning and Trudeau apologists and the like, right? He says, so like Johnny said, we're like two years out from election. A lot can change as far as policy goes. The same would be true if roles were reversed and the liberals had the lead and the conservatives were behind. That has nothing to do with political leanings. That's just a fact. I find that as we go along, especially on social media, more and more people just want to see confirmation bias. They want to see their own belief system supported everywhere they go. You don't like what mainstream media says? Maybe you should sit back and reflect on why you don't like it. Maybe it's your bias getting in the way. Maybe you don't want to have to face the hard truths of reality. It's also really easy to point out past wrongdoing when a lot of time has passed as opposed to having information available present day. The only way, says Morgan, that we can change things for the better, agree to meet on the middle, is we're open to hearing all sides of a conversation instead of shutting things down we don't want to hear. He says, I'm going to add that I'm a 41-year-old, straight white male, center of the road politically, and I certainly don't feel under siege about anything. And it's high time that other people should have the same advantages that I've had in my entire life. If you're like me and that's a sticking point for you, maybe you should ask yourself why. Morgan says, keep up the real talk. That's why I listen. I want conversations by real people with real feelings and real opinions, whether I agree with them or not. Morgan, we love that. You can send us your trash talk anytime to talk at ryanjesperson.com. It's proudly presented by our friends at Local Environmental Services. Have yourselves a wonderful weekend. Let us know what you thought about the show. Tell all your friends, like, share, subscribe, and we'll see you on Monday. Real Talk is hosted by Ryan Jesperson. Executive producer, Josh Dunford. Technical producer, John Hicks. General manager, Katie Cook-Chivers. Account coordinator, Lawrence Durlego. Human Resources, Lena Shepherd. Website Design, Mike Johnston. VoiceOver by me, Terry Skelton. Real Talk's editorial board is Supriya Duvetti, Ahmed Ali, Brandi Morin, Anne Castleman, Corey Hogan, Harmon Candola, Catherine O'Neill, and Chris Henderson. Member Emerita, Julie Rohr. Real Talk is recorded in Edmonton, Alberta on Treaty 6 territory, the traditional and ancestral territory of the Cree, Dene, Blackfoot, Soto, and Nakota Sioux, home to the Métis settlements and the Métis Nation of Alberta. Real Talk is a relay project. For more, check out ryanjesperson.com.